Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are covering the Ammonite Violin, parentheses, Murder Ballad Number 4, which is a story by Caitlin R. Kiernan. This one was originally published in the edited volume, the edited collection, Dark Delicacies 2, colon, Fear, in 2007. Also, I promise I won't say every punctuation mark for the entire episode. <laughs> yeah, you'd have a rough go of it if you did. I really enjoyed this story. It's a lot of fun. You can tell that Caitlin Kiernan is taking a lot from the history of weird fiction. And there are plenty of passages and style and technique choices that echo a lot of the writers that we've read already. And, and I'm excited to talk more about that. I want to take a moment and talk about one of our Patreon episodes called The Fate of the Posidonia by Claire Winger Harris. This is a great story written in the early 20th century. And it's a story that was based on a magazine competition where they asked people to write a story based on the cover of the magazine. And this one won. And it's such a fun story. I really loved covering this one. So uh, I hope I hope if you're a patron supporter that you'll check it out. And if you're interested in this story, uh, read a little bit about it and then come support us over on Patreon. And of course, we want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. The show wouldn't be possible without you. And we love doing this show. So thank you so much for your contributions. Thank you so much for your help. And I am really glad that we're doing this Kiernan story. And, and there's a real connection here, as you allude to, Brandon, between this story and the, the Claire Winger Harris story, really many of the stories that we've covered here on Elder Sign and on our Patreon bonus episodes, in that Kiernan really is drawing on a, the real rich tradition of I guess horror stories in particular here, but weird fiction more broadly. And even the very first line of this story includes a mention of a reference to pulp magazines of the sort of, of weird tales and amazing stories, the sort of magazine that published short stories by Claire Winger Harris and H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith and so on. I really enjoyed that aspect of the story and I'm excited to get into it. So Brandon, why don't you walk us through this one? The style of this story is really a little unconventional, I think. The narrator lets us know in the opening sentence that the collector, though he is too modest to think of himself as the collector, he thinks of himself as a collector, uh, would never write the story that we are about to get. He's just, he's not a writer. And although he works to pay his bills like other collectors, uh, maybe even like one who rightly could call himself the collector, his energy is focused on maintaining and finding new items for his collections. He lives by the sea and remains there because the sea brings him peace. He sometimes wishes the sea were a woman so that he could have her, but he knows that if he did possess the sea, he would lose the peace that it brings to him. He would lose her, so he's glad that the sea is not a woman. The collector, we find out, collects two things, and his devotion and attention to those things are equally split between them. The first is an object, and what he collects are fossilized ammonites. The second are, quote, all the young women he has murdered by suffocation, always by suffocation, for that is how the sea would kill, how the sea does kill, usually, and in taking life, he would ever pay tribute and honor to that first mother of the world, that first collector. The suffocations are his secret collection, so he doesn't really talk about them all that much with other people, if at all. But the Ammonites are not secret, and so he's happy to go into detail about collecting them, which he does for about 150 words. I love the way this story opens. We are deep in the point of view of a serial killer, but because we're in his head, and, and really because Kiernan's prose is quite beautiful, he's sympathetic, right? This is Lolita. But this guy, our collector, is a monster, right? He's a real monster. He murders women he loves because for him, love is simply the desire to possess something. And so women, and, and really people, I think, in general, are, are not a different kind of thing than his fossil collection for him, right? He doesn't see the difference. This is a real sociopathic thing here. There's also this very creepy notion he has that by suffocating his victims, he's paying tribute and honor to the sea, who he regards as the first mother of the world. The first mother of the world. That's 
pretty creepy. There's a, a kind of religious devotion here in this phrase, and he even calls the sea here in this opening his deity who kindly grants him peace when he can no longer bear the clamor in his head or the far more terrible clamor of mankind. And this reverence for, and maybe we could call it an obsession with, the sea is also at the root, right, of this other collecting hobby, the, the fossils of prehistoric mollusks. So the, the sea is going to be the unifying thing here, and it's going to be an image that we're going to see throughout this entire story. And she's going to do a lot of really interesting things with that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And her prose is outstanding with the love that the collector shows towards the sea. And and you're absolutely right to point out that he regards it as a deity. He prays to the sea uh, towards the end of the story. In reading this story, it, it reminded me of his, of like a, an odd horror tale of Iris Murdoch's The Sea, The Sea, which has a kind of a, a similarly, you know, middle-aged character uh, living by the sea and is, and is constantly drawn to the imagery uh, that the sea kind of spews out in the night. And I love what Kiernan does with the sea in this story, though I don't want to, um, uh, I don't want to throw our readers off. The sea, the sea is not a horror novel by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> it's about an aging actor who was moved to a small town, but he is haunted by the sea imagery. And, and that commonality really uh, stood out to me in this story. Right. Well, this is an aging serial killer who has uh, moved to a small town by the sea. So there might actually be some self-conscious connection there on Kiernan's part. So Kiernan, Kiernan gives us a bit of natural history of Ammonites as well, which I, I really enjoy. I think you said it was about 150 words. I mean, it is a full page that could seem tangential, uh, perhaps like a digression, I guess. But I actually think it's it's tied to one of the big things that Kiernan is doing here. Because it's going to lead into the discussion later, uh, I want to point out some of the things that she actually does here on that page. So the, the name Ammonite refers to the ancient Egyptian god Ammon, who was the, the patron of Thebes and later then became the, the chief god in the Egyptian pantheon. And so he's associated with Zeus and Jupiter in the ancient Mediterranean religious syncretism. So I'm sure that people have seen images of him, I, I'm sure. And his most important attribute, if, you, if you've seen an image, his most important attribute is his horns, right? That's how you know it's Ammon, is that this god has horns. Other things about him will change over time as artistic styles, the way that that, that figures and, and that busts are depicted, but the horns will always tell you that that's who you're looking at. And we get the association between this Egyptian god and these fossils from uh, Pliny the Elder's Natural History, which was written in Latin around the year 50. I mean, it's contemporary to uh, early Christian text, for example. I mean, Kiernan also here, and I think this is what's perhaps most important, Kiernan also invokes the Book of Mormon. And this is uh, thematically going to be, I think, really significant, as we'll see at the end of the story. The Ammonites in the Book of Mormon are not anything to do with, they don't have anything to do with the god Ammon. They're a splinter group of the ancient Israelites who settled in North America around 600 BC, according to the Book of Mormon. And they're named after their leader Ammon, which was a fairly common personal name in antiquity. So again, this has no connection to the Egyptian god. Uh, there's not anything even really especially significant to that name at all. But what may matter for us is that when the Ammonites adopt Mormonism, or Christianity, we might say, when they do that, when they have this religious conversion, they give up war and violence, even in self-defense. And, and they take this so far that they bury their weapons deep in the ground so that they won't be able to use them anymore, even if they're tempted to, right? Like if their community is attacked, it would take them too long to get their weapons out to do anything about it. This is how deep their commitment to non-violence runs at the moment that they have this religious conversion. Yeah, that's a fa fantastic point. And I'm excited to see how it how it. Uh, comes up in our discussion of this story, uh, which is a, a fairly violent story, though it does end surprisingly, I think, which is a testament to how well Kiernan threads the, the plot. Well, on the particular day that the narrator has decided to tell us about, the collector is sipping some red zinger tea, and he's looking around his collection room until his eyes fall upon a violin case that is laying open on his desk. Uh, the violin, in his mind, is the object that forms the bridge between his two collections. He calls it his keystone. 
And we learn a little bit about the construction of the violin here. He had sent ammonites and other materials, which we'll learn about, trust me, to a luthier in Belgium, who has made the violin precisely to the collector's specifications. And now the violin is here, and the collector feels like he has to follow through on the plan that having the violin being so perfectly completed is setting in motion. And he almost doesn't want to find the violin to have been perfectly made. So he inspects it, and he finds that the luthier has done some exemplary work. Four small ammonites have been set into the wood of the, the face of the violin. The violin's neck is finished maple, and the fingerboard is ebony. The scroll, though, has been formed from a fifth ammonite. And in the collector's minds, these five ammonites form the points of a pentacle. The back of the violin includes a bas-relief of an octopus that has been faithfully reproduced from the collector's own drawing. The pegs, bridge, chin rest, and tailpiece of the violin have all been carved from bone that the collector gave the luthier. It could be thought of as ivory. He also provided the dry gut for the strings. And the luthier tried to warn the collector that the gut that that the collector provided wouldn't be as durable as stranded steel and, and more difficult to keep in tune. But this doesn't bother the collector because the instrument will be played only once. The collector also provided hair for the bow, and he told the luthier that this came from a gelding, and he had special rosin made from a combination of Aleppo pine and an oil that the collector gave the rosin maker. Now that the violin is complete, he can pay the luthier the remainder of the fee he promised. So he mails out that check and the rest of his bills, and he also sends a letter on lilac-scented stationery to a violinist who lives in Brooklyn. So far, this story has been real thick on descriptions of and information about the two objects that are in the title here, ammonites and violin. We get all of this information about what ammonites are, when they're from, the sort of cultural history of ammonites, their connections with various religions and so on. And here now we get this description of this violin. This is a two-page description of what this violin is made of, uh, what it looks like, the care that has gone into all of this uh, from the, the point of view of the, the collector, and, and some allusions to the expense of this, right? That this is a serious thing that he's he's asking this uh, international, this foreign violin maker to construct for him. And it is beautiful, right? We get this thick description of the the different variety of woods that are used here, spruce, maple, ebony, right? You can kind of picture that in your mind. The the ammonites in their different uh, their different places on the violin forming this pentacle. That's a pretty creepy detail, right? You, the use of that word certainly invokes some kind of dark magic for us. I think whether or not that's something that's going to you know turn out to actually be present in this story that at least at this point is clearly about a serial killer and not about magic and witchcraft. One of these is uh, the scroll, which I think is a really cool touch. Uh, you know, for for people who aren't musically inclined, the the scroll is the knobby bit at the beginning of the, the neck of the violin, and so for that to be just one of these beautiful fossilized ammonites seems like that would look very cool. But it's also going to, I think, weigh have a different weight, right? And so there's there's some really interesting things that she's doing with this violin. But I think the most interesting thing that you you narrated here, Brandon, is this bow relief sculpture of scary sea creatures that's on the back of the violin. I was really reminded of the bas-reliefs from Lovecraft's story, Dagon. I think that this is an explicit connection. I think we are meant to be thinking of Dagon here. This is not the last allusion to other uh, weird fiction stories that's going to crop up here in this story. But I think that what actually matters about this violin, the detail that almost gets buried in these other details, is something really awful, right? which is that Many of its components, the pegs, the strings, the rosin, come from the body of one of the women the collector has murdered. And and, and that's not spelled out here explicitly, but it, it's we're, we're meant to know that that's what's going on. And she's not hiding that fact. And, and this suggests then that he really does actually collect these women, not just the memory of the act, but that he has their bodies or, or parts of their bodies as trophies, as a collection. And it's really disturbing. 
Yeah, I will say the the first time I was reading this story uh, to just kind of get it in my head before we before I uh, kind of dove into the recap and read it a lot more closely. You know, I was reading it on my way to work on the train, and I sort of skimmed over some of these elements uh, because I think she, while she doesn't hide the fact that this is uh, you know body parts of one of his victims or maybe many of his victims, she buries it in an information dump and kind of covers it with a sort of plausibility that uh, if you're the violin maker, you're not going to think that any of this is strange, that this person has spent years finding bits of ivory or finding the perfect you know, hair from the tail of a gelding and that the the pieces he sends along to have made into this violin are objects that are similarly collectible the way ammonite is. And it's just a beautiful way to hide in plain sight. And only after kind of rereading and really digging into some of this stuff are you really just truly disgusted. I, as a reader, um, you know, if I'm trying to just get a bigger picture of something, the first time I read it, I'll tend to skim over heavy descriptive passages. With a story like this, you can. And I'm about to read a section of a descriptive passage that I think further evokes Dagon, but I think is also incredibly beautiful and evocative. This is a really good, this is a really well-written story. Uh, it, it is. I wonder if this is the same passage that I have uh, highlighted here as well. So uh, let, let's get to it. Let's hear this. It's awesome. Yeah, well, the point of view shifts at this point in the story. And we're told once again that the person whose point of view we are now in is the type of person who would also never write a story. And this is the violinist from Brooklyn. And the narrator here now has to be the voice for this woman as well. And I think this is where we get some of this ballad imagery or the this sense of a ballad. This is almost like a duet in some way. We have two voices and they come together at the end in, in almost a, a counter melody or a harmony in some way that, that really brings the climax of the story together. I think it's cool. It puzzled me for a little while why this was called a, a ballad, but um, I think this has something to do with it. The violinist did receive the lilac-scented letter and she does what it asks her to do. She gets a train ticket to a small town in Massachusetts and she takes a train there. And we learn a little bit about the violinist. She doesn't like the sea because it reminds her of death. And somehow this is connected to the loss of her sister, who I think we're meant immediately to know that the sister is dead, but we'll learn that the violinist doesn't necessarily believe that her sister has died. The violinist hates fish lobster, clams, and the smell of the ocean. Furthermore, and here's where I'll quote a little bit here, she has often dreamt of drowning and of the slimy things with bulging black eyes, eyes as empty as night that have slithered up from the abyssal depths and drag her back down with them to lightless plains of silt and diatomaceous ooze or to the ruins of haunted, sunken cities. I mean... This is just great weird fiction writing. I love this passage. Yeah, this is like H.P. Lovecraft's greatest hits in a single sentence here, right? Yeah, this is this is the one that I had highlighted, also underlined, circled. I had a little sticky notes, to, you know, sticking out from the page on this. Uh, just an amazing, amazing sentence. And it tells us so much. This passage here tells us so much about this violinist. She is held up as a, a, a complete contrast to the collector, right? That she is at the opposite end of the spectrum of feelings about the sea. She hates everything about the sea. The collector loves everything about the, the sea. So again, the, these even their feelings about the sea, this is kind of the glue, not just of the story, but the glue of this character relationship, at least from the perspective of characterizing them. We're going to see they actually have something uh, in common dramatically in the story as well. Well, I can't wait to get to it. <laughs> from the train depot, the violinist takes a taxi and she ends up at the man's house. Uh, for some reason, the man strikes her as older and fatter than she had envisioned him to be. And on some weird level, she reminds her, he reminds her of Captain Kangaroo. This is a very odd detail to throw in here, but I thought it was pretty funny. Captain Kangaroo, for those who don't know, was a child's entertainer that did sort of really that was sort of like uh i don't know a cousin 
to Mr. Rogers in the world of children's entertainment. Not the world's greatest show. It is a really strange detail that jumps out here on the on the page, and I didn't think about really why it's here until my third or fourth reading, and then it occurred to me that this is actually a clue that's to tell us when temporally this is this story is taking place, which is to say the 1970s. That it's not taking place today. It's not taking place in this millennium, even though the story was written then. Uh, so it's for the con- our, us, the contemporary audience, to understand that this is uh, taking place in the 70s. There are a couple other clues that do this as well, though I don't know in the end that that knowledge amounts to anything. Yeah, and I think uh, maybe in a draft of this story, it was more explicit, but she must have left something in um, to explain the sort of odd norm- normalcy of letter writing and people just responding to a letter in, in a way uh, that nobody would do today without investigating somebody first. <laughs> right. I think that's that's almost certainly the concern that she's addressing here, but it's also a pretty good image. So Captain Kangaroo. Yeah. Well, she's a little leery of continuing on in this mission that she's accepted, but the cab has driven off and she recognizes that it's true that she could just walk to town even though the weather's kind of rough and it's not ideal. But she could just go back to town, forget the whole expedition. But he's this guy's offering her a lot of money, and she's going to get a little more than a whole month's rent out of performing on this violin. And the collector sees her sort of standing there timidly, so he invites her inside the house. He makes some more Red Zinger tea while the violinist stands in his collection room. And she's examining his fossils. He asks if he can call the violinist Ellen, which is her name. So she says, of course. The collector is being exceedingly polite here in this section. And you can tell he's just trying to put the violinist at ease. He recognizes his own weirdness, I think, at this point in the story. But mostly, he doesn't want to rush her into her performing on the violin before She's ready to give the performance that he wants. They could talk more, he says. And she says that she's never been that comfortable with conversation or with language in general. And that music is really a mode in which she is much better suited to express herself. The collector now shows her the violin. It is really beautiful, like we've been led to believe. And she, Ellen, will be the first to play it. But she wants to know why it is that he chose her to come out to play the violin. And this thought does plague her a little bit, and it kind of sits in the back of her mind for a while. But she doesn't say anything about it now because she doesn't want to offend the man who was offered to pay her so much money to play it. The man does seem to understand this trepidation, and he, he answers the question without her having to ask it. And this is what he says. He says... The universe is a marvelously complex bit of craftsmanship, and sometimes one must look very closely to even begin to understand how a given thing connects with another. Your late sister, for instance, and he is cut off as he says this, because the violin does not know what this man has to do or what he knows about her sister. So she asks how he knows her and how he knows about her sister. He says that it's no secret. She was murdered, and this was in the newspapers. But the violinist says that her sister wasn't murdered. They never found a body. She's only missing. The collector replies that she's been missing for quite some time. And now the violinist, Ellen, is getting more and more upset. So the collector tries to put her back at ease. He asks Ellen for forgiveness, and he explains that he admires her work. But this only serves to put her more ill at ease because she doesn't think anybody admires her work at all. She's not well known enough. So she asks now point blank how he found her. The collector explains that he had seen her and her sister perform at an art gallery called Icon on Mercer Street. And it's not Icon with an I. uh, It's Icon E-Y-E. It's a kind of a, I think, a jab at modern art, contemporary art on some level. It's just a terrible name. Yeah, it is a terrible name. And the paintings that were on display while these uh, sisters were playing their violins were also terrible. And this is something everybody in this story uh, agrees upon. Uh, This guy remembered it once he had the violin made, and he called up the art gallery who passed along her information. 
also not something that would happen in uh, the year 2019 or even 2007. He begs the violinist to stay because he really recognizes that she's ready to go. And he apologizes for bringing up the past. The violinist agrees to stay. She's calmed down and she states that she just needs to tune the violin before they get going. And she talks herself off the ledge while she's tuning the violin and really just commits now to playing whatever the collector asks her to play. This whole scene is extraordinary. You you talked about the politeness, the real excessive courtesy that the collector shows to Ellen. I think we read that a little bit differently. You read that as kind of his own nervousness, uh, sort of a, an acknowledgement of his own weirdness. I actually took this to be a, a studied, real real methodical move, a calculated move that he's making on his part, that it really shows us actually that he doesn't think that when he gets women alone and suffocates them, that what he's doing is murdering them. What he's doing is, one, making an offering to his god, the the sea, and two, collecting them because he loves them. And so he thinks he's a good guy. And he and chivalry is not dead with him, even though it might be dead in the, the wider world. And he knows how to be polite to a lady and, and so on. That was how I that's how I read the, the interaction here. But there's a lot going on in this scene, in this moment when Ellen becomes extremely uncomfortable when he says that he knows things about her that uh, she regards as personal things and, and private things she doesn't want him to know. And, and it's not really just that she becomes uncomfortable. I think she becomes afraid here, right? It's it's done marvelously well. And part of her response to being creeped out by uh, this guy that she thinks of as a sad old man who lives alone and collects rocks, part of her response to this is to become repulsed by the, the violin in this moment, this strange violin that really just moments ago she thought was tremendously beautiful and this happens i think at the precise moment right when we the readers intuit that the violin is not merely made from the body of some anonymous victim of the collectors we we, we intuit right here that it's made from the body of ellen's sister and that she should be repulsed and horrified by this and and that maybe even ellen actually senses that somehow on on, on some level here in this interaction and we're going to see some more of that in a moment yeah, the tension is played out perfectly in this scene because I think uh, any reader is is imagining that whatever this guy is doing, whatever the collector is doing to try to keep Ellen to stay, his motive is to murder her. I think we can talk about in the discussion the reason why I think this excessive politeness is is uh, is more about what he's trying trying to accomplish himself, how he wants to kind of see himself. Uh, or want to be seen as rather than what he's trying to uh, maybe do to Ellen here. But uh, I I think regardless of how we read this interaction, the tension is perfect. And I'm on the edge of my seat wondering when he's just going to leap at her and begin to to strangle her down by the sea. Right. And at this point, there's a, a real scene break here. And I remember thinking, just yeah, and I, and I remember on my first read just being super tense at this moment and realizing that I'm still only two thirds of the way through this story, that there's somehow a lot more stuff that is about to happen, even though I am ready for the, the climax of the story to come on the next page. Is this some masterful storytelling here? So I, I won't get in the way anymore, Brandon. So keep us going through this. Right. Well, the collector comes back to the room uh, as Ellen has been tuning it, and he brings an old music stand. And I love the description of this music stand. I won't read it, but I encourage everybody to pick up a copy of uh, the edition that we read this story out of, which is the very best of Caitlin R. Kiernan. And uh, you can read it for yourself. But (laughs) it's really funny, especially if you've ever played music in bands or choirs. Um, And he also brings out a copy of Paganini's Violin Concerto number three in E. And Ellen begins to play the violin. The collector sits back and he is entranced by the music. And he's thinking about his collection. He's really enraptured. There have been 16 suffocations in 21 years. And it's been almost a year to the day since the last suffocation. And he doesn't want this song to end. He prays to the sea to let it go on forever. He's done something perfect. He's accomplished something perfect with this violin and having Ellen play it. And it's a perfect moment. 
And as he's thinking these things, he pulls a revolver from the drawer of his desk. Ellen plays the violin wildly as this is going on, and she too is taken over by the true magic of playing this instrument at this moment and this song. She is speaking fluently and perfectly in her native language, so she closes her eyes, also not wanting this moment to end. She's so deeply involved in the performance. But her sister's voice kind of breaks through into her mind and says that it can't be that way. Everything comes to an end. And somehow, the strange alchemy of this moment has caused Ellen to understand everything about the situation she's in. She sees the fat man murdering her sister in her mind, but she continues to play on, drawing out the supernatural memory of her sister's last moments and of the man's construction of the violin. He took four of her sister's fingers and part of a thigh bone, strands of her hair, the fat of her breasts, a section of a small intestine. With all of these things, along with the five fossils, he had the violin made. And at this point, as this memory concludes, Ellen's reverie is interrupted by a gunshot. She opens her eyes and concludes the piece, but she still doesn't want it to stop. Her sister tells her that this is the end. This is all there is to see. This is all there is to show. Ellen looks across the room. The collector is at his desk, slumped over, blood spilling from his open mouth. Ellen knows that her sister will not speak again, and that her sister has revealed all that she can reveal. Ellen knows that she has to call the police, but she's going to take the violin. She's going to claim it as her own. The police will find other evidence of the collector's activities, so they won't need the violin for evidence anyway. Ellen knows the truth about her sister now. And she will never try to tell this story, as words have never come easily to her. And like the violin, the story is hers now, and hers alone. And this is how the story ends. This took a number of unexpected turns here. I did not see this coming. This I did not expect that the collector was going to kill himself and, and not kill Ellen. And I did not expect that we were going to get a ghost, maybe. I mean, this was an unexpected development, a really unexpected development of this story. But I think it works really beautifully. And we get at the end here this real sense of, of the collector as, a, as this fastidious and organized person who has planned this whole thing. It's not entirely clear why. That's something we're going to try to get at in the discussion. But that he fully that this is part of his confession he wants people to know that he has committed all of these crimes and so he's kept all of these detailed records and he has physical remains from his victims and he has all of this already arranged for the police to discover when they arrive this is everything here is happening as a really a, a choreography that he has designed one of the things i love most about what kiernan does here in this this final scene really the, the third act of this story is to double down on the parallels between Ellen and the collector. We get that very beautifully in the refrain that they are both saying in in a sort of italicized internal monologue, which I think is generally not actually a good storytelling device, but it works very well here, where they're actually saying the same thing in response to the music about not wanting it to end. But Kiernan goes a step farther with Ellen's response to this that is actually a parallel back to something in the first act that we got from the collector's perspective. The the line that Kiernan gives us back there is that the sea kindly grants the collector peace when he can no longer bear the clamor in his head or the far more terrible clamor of mankind. But here in Act 3, the, the line for Ellen is, let this moment never end and I will never have to stop playing and there will never again be silence or the noise of human thoughts and conversation. Both of these people here, both of the characters in this story, don't really like other people that much. And they have hobbies that they really love that offer them a kind of solace from other people. It's expertly done here, a sort of a dark and a light, a sort of, you know, yin-yang, sort of two sides of the the same coin. It's, It's really beautiful characterization throughout and just some expert craftsmanship. 
But I'll stop singing the, the praises of the story. And I, I want to circle back, actually, to a question that I just raised in order to, to start the discussion, which is, why does the collector kill himself in this story? And why does he do it in this particular way? I think one of the reasons why he kills himself is that he's no longer able to continue his hobby of murdering girls. He's old. He's overweight. Um, and maybe he just can't do it anymore. The The last one he did which was uh, the Ellen's, which was Ellen's sister. Maybe he did that and realized he needed to come up with a new plan. And if he couldn't have his hobbies, um, life wasn't worth living. And so I think this whole thing is so perfectly arranged because it is his last act and he can't let it fail. And I think that's why I think he, he in this moment maybe sees himself briefly as other people see him because he's no longer taking control. He's no longer going to exercise power over this woman in his house. He is there and they have to do this thing, which is a form of exercising power, but he's doing it so that he can kill himself, not that he can maintain the the kind of types of power and control he had exerted before. Uh, and I think he wants to be remembered in a certain way or seen in a certain way um, and have the horrors only come out after he dies, not while he's alive. And that's all about image control. I read all of that about him needing to control his image. And some of the desperation in needing Ellen to stay is caught up in uh, that need to control his image, but also the need for her to play so that he can end it all. I think that's a fantastic reading of his character motivation. And I I guess we're kind of told that really even in the first line of the story where Kiernan introduces him to us as someone who would never tell his story. He's not a poet or a novelist, but he actually is telling his story here. He, He is perhaps not doing it in poetry or in a novel or a short story for the pulp magazines. That's the, the full bit of the line that we get there, but he's staging a play here. He's staging a drama. He is telling his story this way. He is putting this crazy and interesting and dramatic ending to a story that is actually told in the journals that he's left for the police and in the evidence, the physical evidence that he has left for the police. He has created a story that Ellen is going to have to tell to the the police as, as well, right? So he is perhaps not writing a novel, as Kiernan says, but he is crafting the story of his life here because he he's in charge. He's not going to just give up his hobby because he's physically unable to do it anymore and just, what, live another 20 years just eating seafood and not murdering people, right? I mean, like, don't think that that's a life that he can he can have, right? Right, yeah. Nobody wants a life of eating seafood and not murdering people. That's, a, <laughs> that's like a dreadful existence. People might be learning too much about me here. Um yeah, I think you're right. And and what's great, kind of what's great about the end of this story is Ellen is also not going to expose his masterpiece to the world. She's she's kind of withholding that from evidence. And also nobody's going to know what actually happened to her sister. She's got that same sort of disconnect uh, from other people that the collector has. And so we get the sense that all she's going to tell the police is that she went there with the violin that she's stealing to play a piece and this guy shot himself. But she's not going to tell any story. And if the police find other evidence, which she knows is in the house, then they'll expose it. But she feels no responsibility to tell anyone about this supernatural experience that she's had to uncover the the real darkness of this person. And I wonder if there's... Um, kind of an odd affinity between them that she's not willing to recognize as well. That's certainly a technique Kiernan used throughout the story is to to show parallels between them, to to show their behaviors, their motivations kind of rooted in some of the same things, but expressed differently. So I think that's absolutely has to be what's going on here. I, I am, I will say, I like this reading of why the collector kills himself and choreographs it this way, but I'm I'm still a little bit troubled with with this resolution or, or maybe with this reading is because because the thing that jumped out to me the most the theme i should say that jumped out to me the most in this story was religion there is a lot 
of religion in this story. The collector worships the sea as a, a goddess and 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 uh, worships her really as the goddess who he thinks of as, as someone who has cradled us all, each and every one of us, through the innum- through the innumerable twists and turns of evolution's crucible for three and a half thousand million years. There's a great Lovecraftian cosmic horror line there. All right, so he worships the sea as a goddess. He regards his murdering as the, the payment of a long overdue tithe, and then we have the collector here thinking about the ancient Egyptian god Ammon, and also about the, the Book of Mormon, but a particularly important bit of the Book of Mormon that's actually about violence and deciding not to do violence anymore. And I really thought that there was a connection there between the conversion of the Ammonites and their putting away violence and this action that the collector does here in the end where he essentially decides to retire from being a purveyor of violence. I really see the connection between the Ammonites uh, from the Book of Mormon and the collector deciding not to do violence. But I think the rest of the sort of religious imagery that you brought up is really just that. It's the it's the imagery. It's sort of like the, the bas-relief that he puts on the back of the violin. And I think that this little icon joke in the story is calling our attention to the power of these iconographic symbols that he is committed to the power of the symbol of the sea or of the horns and the way they connect to kind of mollusk shaped shells and um, the power of this violin. He, he really imbues symbols with a lot of power. And it's really this sort of private iconography that he's engaged with that maybe can no longer provide him with any power to act as he wishes to anymore because the power wasn't in the symbols for him. It was in his ability to overpower women. And so I wonder if that's a little bit of what's going on here as well. And all of this religious iconography, or at least the majority of this religious iconography, is wrapped up with the ocean, which I think is really the other big motif here in this story, the the, the big image in this story, right? The ocean calls to the collector and he worships the ocean in this extraordinarily creepy way. But Ellen, on the other hand, is totally repulsed by it. And she even has these dreams that are downright Lovecraftian in the the scary sea monster sense. And then we get all of these invocations of other scary sea creatures, right, uh, on the the bas-relief on the violin. But we, we get them actually in some other places as well. I mean, the Ammonites themselves are described as being... The, the, the krakens of the crustaceous and their tentacles, their, their six foot bodies and their massive tentacles are described several times in the story. It's the kind of lowbrow cartoonish caricature of Lovecraft, but it's a, it's a part of it nonetheless. I wasn't really quite sure what Kiernan was doing with that and especially its connection with the religious imagery as well or the religious motif. Do you have any sense of what Kiernan actually wants us to be taken away from all of this ocean imagery or is this just meant to clue us in that she's playing with genre conventions here i did a little reading up on caitlin kiernan uh in preparation for this podcast because this is the first story that i've read of hers and i kind of wanted to know more about her and uh when she's writing because many of the editions of the books we pick up for this podcast uh, could have been written any time <laughs> based on the, the way people reissue these editions or uh, reissue editions of some of this this more uh, weird fiction or horror writing stuff. Um, and this cover seems very, the cover of the edition we got is very contemporary, but I just wasn't sure, you know, of the time period she was actually writing in because this story doesn't offer any real clues. It It, it is outside of our time as, as much weird fiction writing is. It exists kind of in a non-technological zone. And one thing uh, that that I learned was that that she is more interested in these sort of mental tapestries, so to speak, than in, in the plot per se. And I think that really comes through in this story, that she's trying to form a really coherent image that draws both of these characters together. And I think with the sea uh, and the ammonites and fossils and bones and uh, the past being dredged up, uh, which is a phrase used in this story, uh, and dredging is a particularly nautical term, that she's really starting with the images and then moving out from there 
to write this story. And I think it, it shows tremendous talent that she's able to create a plot out of the images she's working with um, because we've read writers who cannot do that, who, you know, like Lovecraft are stuck with a, with a dream and can't find the plot in it to, to communicate. And it also reminds me of, of some of, of Thomas Ligotti, who is, you know, maybe her peer in age, but in terms of publishing history, is writing 20 years before uh, some this story is published, where we're just really looking at an obsessed mind. And that obsessed kind of mind really calls to my mind, Robert W. Chambers, uh, the, the repair of reputations, kind of this sick, obsessed mind. And I don't know if there's more to it than that that's tying the story together in terms of the the use of religion here but i think she does an incredible job of taking these images and showing us the depth of the obsession on the ammonite side to allow the reader to infer the depth of the collector's obsession on the suffocating women's side and i think that that is part of the function of having these uh, the the Ammonites and the and the detail about it in this story. Certainly, Kiernan has given us an amazing character study here, and the character of the Collector has all of these attributes from various Lovecraftian stories. I mean, we've really emphasized here the ocean part of that, but Lovecraft stories are also about religion and invoke antiquity, ancient religion in particular, and sculptures, the way things look, uh, the long history of, of books. I mean, Lovecraft, of course, makes up a lot of them here. Their uh, books are, are, are real, the Book of Mormon, Pliny the Elder, and so on. But that's all woven together here. But also we have the setting of New England. That's extremely important for, for Lovecraft, you know, good, good Rhode Islander. I mean, even though we, we actually don't, I think, associate Lovecraft primarily with serial killers, he has a, a serial killer story that we haven't read yet. In fact, I think, actually, I would say that he has more than one, at least arguably he has more than one. And Kiernan uses a lot of the same tricks in her story, in this story, that, that Lovecraft uses in the, the picture in the house as well. And I think Kiernan is being self-conscious about that, that she's kind of trying to really imagine what it would actually be like to be a character in a Lovecraft story, someone who is inexplicably drawn to the sea, shuns the contemporary culture around him and returns to pagan religious rituals in, in some sense, and even pagan religious cosmology as well, and is also a serial killer and lives in New England and is in a small town in New England all by himself and uh, and, and despises the working class, which is a, a note that we didn't really call attention to in the recap, but the collector despises his working class father and, and has done better than him, and, and in fact thinks that that's because he has given into or or taken up collecting where his father never had any interests in life. He was never himself a collector. I think all of that is in Lovecraft and all of that is here as well. But it is a richer character that we get here than we've ever gotten in a, in a Lovecraft story. I really saw Ellen as the kind of Lovecraftian protagonist oh, that's in amazing. this story, uh, which is which is so funny because she receives the like the odd letter with strange details. This is a, an olfactory detail in this story that excites her either need for buying groceries or uh, her professional desire to be recognized as a, as a good violin player or a good uh, professor of folklore or something like that, <laughs> and is called out to this strange uh, sort of gothic rotting house, yellow house on the sea, and is surrounded by all of these clues to a mystery she doesn't know she needs to solve in order to survive. And to me, I saw her as the sort of Lovecraftian protagonist who never tells the story, though in this one, it's not because she goes mad and she can't. Um, it's because she will never tell her story because it's hers. It's a private thing. Yeah, this is a fantastic reading of this story. This really opens this up for me and makes me appreciate it even more. She's the one having the Lovecraftian dreams, right? And and I think you're you're absolutely spot on to point to the olfactory 
clue that she gets here. And, and I don't know how Kiernan resisted using the word noisome in this story, the way that Lovecraft loves to use that word, right? It probably was in the first draft, maybe even the third draft before she decided to cut it. But no, this is absolutely right. And she's even coming up from Brooklyn, which is a, a place that Lovecraft lived uh, seemingly or in, in a type of exile, as he considered it, uh, for a few years before returning to, to Providence. So I think all of that is there. We've got a kind of Lovecraftian villain. We've got a real Lovecraftian hero. And they're meeting in a situation in which one of them plays music. One of them, it's, it's like a, a one-on-one violin concert. It's marvelous. This is a great story. It's so much fun. I, I, like, it's one of the best weird fiction stories I think we've read for the podcast so far. I think we've already talked about this story an awful lot, but I do want to ask you one other question. And it's maybe a silly question, and I certainly would want to invite listeners to the forum to give us their answers to this. But I was really struck by the selection of Paganini's Violin Concerto Number no. 3 as the piece in this story, rather than, than some other piece of violin music. I am a huge classical music buff, but I've actually never heard this piece. And so I had to go and listen to it, and nothing really jumped out to me. Like, it didn't have a sort of nautical sound to it or something like that. Do you have any idea, Brandon, why Kiernan chose that piece of all the violin pieces that she could have chosen? I don't. Um, I I was coming back from vacation this week and just didn't have time to, to listen to the concerto like I had planned. And... Uh, so I was really hoping you would never ask this question, Glenn, but uh, um, I, I will go home and listen to it. And I really, I, I wonder if any of our listeners do have a better answer than uh, our our inability to bridge that gap or my own laziness here. So I think that's a great question to leave open to our listeners. So on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. If you like what we're doing here, please do check us out on Patreon. You'll get access to dozens, I mean, about three dozen bonus episodes, including Claire Winger Harris's really tremendous story, The Fate of the Posidonia. And as some listeners know, I've been working on a kind of semi-secret solo podcast project that's not going to come to fruition for a little while, but Patreon members are actually able to vote on the books that I'm reading and talking about on that podcast. And I loved this story so much that I am putting a Kiernan novel on the the next ballot. So if you were to to join Patreon now, you'd be able to vote for me to cover more Caitlin R. Kiernan over there. So if you're really inspired by this, uh, again, check out Patreon. And And of course, we really thank you for your support. Head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the Ammonite Violin or Murder Ballad number four. Tell us about anything you thought we missed in the story and definitely let us know why Paganini is the choice of music that this collector decides to use. All right, next time we'll be back with The Beast in the Cave by H.P. Lovecraft. I think we've said Lovecraft's name an awful lot in this episode, so we're actually going to turn to him next. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.